Good evening and welcome once again to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm your host, Jeff Hayden. We had planned a two-part broadcast to follow last night's election. Next week, more a more in-depth look at nuts and bolts, just what is changing. Tonight was set aside to discuss just where we are. Joining me, my co-host tonight, Emmy-nominated legal and political analyst, Dean Johnson. Dean? Good evening, everyone. And Jeffrey Hayden, welcome back. Thank you. We, we have missed you so much. Now, last night, as you said, Jeffrey, a political cliffhanger with democracy teetering in the balance. 24 hours later, and we still don't know exactly where we are or what the outcome will be for America or for the Bay Area. Right, Jeffrey? Yes, and thank you, Dean. It's good to be back. And I agree, just where we are remains uncertain for so many of us. Locally, in Oakland, ranked choice voting means we have yet to sort winners from losers. In Santa Clara's mayoral election and a supervisorial election in San Mateo, well, well under 100 votes separates two candidates. But, Jeff, you know, while local politics is important, and these days even more so, let's look at what happened nationally. We have yet to know for certain who will lead each House of Congress. What will that mean to policy? So many sources predicted a red wave that never materialized. Then, as the results came in from the various states, a blue mirage, which only faded in the wee hours of the morning. Jeffrey? And how did we reach the point where the networks, the pundits, were so far off before, even after these elections. This is a hot topic. Some wounds are still fresh. Others are yet to be uncovered. As always, we want you, our most important guest, to be part of this conversation. But please keep any comments short and civil. Give us a call at 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. 4134, that is if you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, or if you're outside, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. Bear in mind that just as a physician won't diagnose your family member based on a phone call, attorney guests can't provide you precise legal advice as they lack all the facts relating to a given case. And again, We're talking about elections that have yet to be sorted out. So our guest can't tell you exactly where those are going to fall just yet. But we're happy to pass along, whether it's the legal principles to assist in your decision making or the political outcomes that might be coming aboard and how you might best brace yourself for those. And while their guidance mightn't be the positions of their employers or clients, our guests are here to help. And tonight we're joined by Mark Simon. Mark is a political writer who for nearly three decades has focused on the Bay Area. He currently writes for the San Mateo Daily Journal. Welcome, Mark. And ladies and gentlemen, tonight's a discussion which we want you to participate. So please give us a call again at 866-798-8255. And again, welcome, Mark. Thank you. It's good to be here with you guys. I got to say, since I've got two attorneys here, I appreciate your legal disclaimer at the top, but I'm going to insist on having to have my Miranda rights read to me, just to, just on general principle. 
You have the right to remain silent, but not while you're on the area. We don't want <laughs> dead air. I'll suspend the rest. Okay. All right, Mark, as, as our uh, listeners know, I always like to start out with a big question. And I think the big question that lingers uh, after last night is that, you know, all the pundits, including me, predicted a red wave. All the conventional wisdom pointed that way. All the metrics indicated that that was going to happen. But there was no red wave. What went right or what went wrong? How did this happen? Well, I, I do think that if you follow the polling as closely as some of us who are uh, abnormally sick uh, do, the, the predictions were all over the place over the course of the last two months. Everything from uh, a surge by the Democrats, especially when gas prices dropped, um, then inflation went up, gas prices have gone back down a little bit. Um, so I think some of it reflects just simply the uncertainty of the times we're in. Um, and the discomfort people have. Um, so I, I suspect that the polls were more right than they may have appeared in that they reflected a, a voter population who was uncertain of what it wanted to do. You know, and then, and then you layer on top of that, you know, we, we all hate negative at, um, campaigning, but it works. And it works to this extent. Uh, if I'm running against Jeff and I go negative on Jeff, I'm not convincing people to vote for me. I'm just convincing people who might vote for Jeff to stay home. So, that, you know, when you sit, spend the, the billions of dollars that have been spent around, around the country, some of these are going to have an effect. Some of them are just going to discourage people. Uh, I wrote a column a couple of weeks ago uh, expressing that I was just disappointed with the tone of the election, especially in San Mateo County, which is really known for sort of squeaky clean politics. I used to joke that it's a hotbed of social rest. Um, but even here, we had uh, negative issues, negative use of wedge issues. We had a primary campaign where some independent expenditure was very negative. So I think some of that is, is simply creating a level of uncertainty. Um, so I think that's, that's what's going on. Is the, the other thing that happens, and it was a terrific piece in the New York Times about this, Ultra-conservative Republicans, especially Trump Republicans, since 2016, when they're polled, tend not to act, answer accurately, just to mess with the pollsters. Um, I don't know if that spilled over to some of the Democrats, because Democrats perform better than expected. But I think it's just another measure of sort of a broad distaste for the system and kind of a pox on all of your houses, not just both, but numerous houses. Well, of course, nobody could ever go negative on Jeff Hayden. I mean, we, we should agree to that. He is as, yes. pure, as pure as the driven snow. But, you know, I came into the election uh, election day feeling extremely pessimistic. I, I thought the apocalypse was upon us. It turned out not to be the case. And I think I emerged this morning with a slight glimmer of hope. Uh, it, does anybody else feel that way? You know, well, I, you, go, go ahead, ahead, Mark. Well, as a, as a journalist, I'm not rooting for one side or the other. Um, but I but I do think, I mean, if anything we've learned from 2016, and even before then, if you go back, some of the people who voted for Obama voted for Trump in 2016. By 2020, uh, we've got a deeply polarized electorate. And so uh, I just think the biggest the biggest thing we take away from this is don't predict how people are going to feel 
I think a lot of times people don't know how they're going to feel until it's time for them to decide. Without taking sides one way or the other, one of the things I've seen happen surprisingly in this election, as I get older, I get more and more distressed as I see the pendulum swinging more wildly and farther from side to side with each transfer of power. And it seems that to the extent that there's going to be a change in Washington, the pendulum swing seems to be much more measured, much more narrow. And it just seems that voters may be actually thinking it through a little more and not necessarily looking to upset and change the world. Did I read that wrong? No, I don't think so. I think I think what we've got is an electorate who's very unhappy. They're angry about COVID. They're in, in the proof of that is there's not universal agreement on what COVID meant and how we should respond to it. It varied hugely from place to place. Um, they're angry about um, the state of the economy. And there's another thing taking place, which is a larger issue we want to get into a little more. There's a generational change taking place. It shows up early in places like San Mateo County, where we really had a changing of the guard. Jackie Spear, veteran member of Congress for decades, gone, replaced by a relatively young uh, man, a family man with a couple of small kids. Uh, we've got um, new people in, in virtually every one of the offices. The Board of Supervisors, by 2024, will be entirely turned over. Five new people. Some of them are going to be young. We've got young people. And we've got a demographic change that is inevitable. Um, you guys know this probably better than I do. We've got younger, more progressive. Uh, it's almost a mistake to call them minority communities because increasingly uh, Caucasians are the minority uh, population. Now, they're still the largest chunk, but they're not 50% plus. So you're seeing, you know, the changing of the guard. You're seeing a generational change. And so what do you expect to have happen? The most conservative people, by their nature, are going to resist that. They're going to resist the diminishment of their power. You know, there are people who may not have even been aware of the level of privilege they have enjoyed as white males, which all of us are guilty of being. Um and suddenly to be told, well, someone else is going to get the chance to do this and they're going to cater to or attend to the issues of a different set of people, that's upsetting to people. So there's just, you know, what you're really seeing is the old Chinese curse. May you live in a time of transition. You know, I do want to switch off to a caller, but before we do, I want to give you some food for thought. You've been mentioning San Mateo County. I'd like to... When we come back from this caller, I'd like to talk a little bit about the city of San Mateo, which is somewhat in opposite of what the county was doing. While we're turning it over in many ways to a younger leadership coming in, it seems they're also moving more towards perhaps and hopefully a more centrist position. But that's to be said. And it's also the first time I've seen from the city all over social media, there's some negative campaignings I've seen in other cities on the peninsula, not so much in San Mateo, and actually some dirty tricks, such as somebody who's been photographed traveling around a fairly populated area of the city. 
lifting and taking campaign signs up and yeah, driving off with them. There was a planning commissioner who actually got caught doing it. Which... With a child on the back of his bicycle. <laughs> and he's know. taking his kid around <laughs> and lifting signs. And there's yeah. pictures of it all over social media. But <laughs> I do want to take our caller has been very patient and been waiting for quite some time. Let me turn it to David from San Mateo. Welcome to your legal rights. Uh, yes, I'd like to talk about Florida. I, I'd like to get your guest's perspective on whether or not Florida is still a swing state. Is it now solidly red? And if so, why? And also the governor, uh, Mr. DeSantis, his brand, uh, is it no longer perceived as just a sub-phenomenon of Trump? Was this uh, perception that he was a sub-phenomenon of Trump a false perception? And is he now, is the GOP weaning off Trump? And has he emerged as the front runner of the Republican Party for 2024? Thank you. There's a few questions there. Um, yeah. One we talked about a bit before the air. But I was curious about your thought about Governor DeSantis. Has it reached the point where he's able to snatch the pebble from the master's hand? Well, <laughs> Let's not stop calling him grasshopper. But um, if you go back and, and read some of the history, I just finished reading uh, Confidence Man, Maggie Haberman's terrific book on the political rise of Donald Trump. And one of the things that she makes abundantly clear is that they were never really close. They were allied uh, almost loosely uh, because they had some common interests. But fairly early on in their relationship, DeSantis made it very clear he was going to go his own way. Um, and clearly that's what he has done. Um, by winning Florida and by winning so much, he certainly has emerged as, um, if not the number one, maybe 1A, maybe two, certainly the rival to Trump. And the proof of that, I mean, the, the beautiful thing about Trump, if you want to put it that way, is you can tell what he's thinking. And in, you know, last week he began calling uh, DeSantis uh, names, which is Trump's way of announcing that he thinks this guy is a competitor. Um, so does he, you know, does he have a clear path to the nomination? Trump will still run, it appears. Um, he was taking credit for massive numbers of wins yesterday, some of which didn't even occur. Um, but certainly he, he is less intimidated by Trump than people who ran against him in 2016. Uh, he has the benefit of having seen what happened in 2016. So I think he will be formidable. And you have to assume that he'll carry his state if he's the nominee. Um, it, it's his state to lose. And based on the vote yesterday, it's kind of hard to imagine that he would not win Florida. One of the comments that I heard the last couple of weeks is that President Trump, former President Trump, was out stating very clearly that for all the wins, the credit is his. But if things don't go their way, it's obviously not based on him. Yeah. Uh, it seems when he was president and the midterms came, he simply declared victory, even though they lost about 40 seats. Yeah. Well, it's, if, you know, it's his own world. What can I tell you? If you, if you I'd urge people, it's the number one seller on the New York Times list right now, the book. But um, and, and it, in some ways, it's you know, uncomfortable because it reminds you of stuff that you've tried to forget. But um, he creates his own reality. And the only question is to other people let him do it. One of the other parts of David's question looked at how Florida suddenly went from, it appears, to have shifted from purple to 
read in very, very striking terms. Is that a misperception based on a single election, or does it appear that Florida's really shifted, and if so, how? Well, I, I think the first answer might be the answer, which is don't read too much into a single election, uh, especially an election for an incumbent governor who, by all you know, by all measures, should have gotten reelected. Um, th- beyond that, you, you know, uh, understanding Florida, frankly, is beyond my depth. It, it has been such a bizarre place. Only in Florida has become a watchword for a lot of weirdness. It used to be only in California. We've lost the mantle of weirdness. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's a hard state to figure. I think it's in flux. The population is in flux. Um, it's heavy, heavy Latino vote, which has been Democratic. Um, but on social issues, I think a lot of people thought should have been more Republican than it has been. So it, it, it sort of has it has its own place in its in in the pantheon. And, and yeah, looking you know, at a single election, one of the commentators I was listening to over the weekend was former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, and he commented about a couple of things that I found rather striking. One of them is how difficult it is to unseat an incumbent governor who's has fairly decent ratings from folks, and the other is how rare it is that down-ticket individuals, particularly for offices such as uh, U.S. Senator, would split off and go the other way, how rare that split ticket is. We had a couple of them or potentially a couple of them this election, and it's very, very rare. Usually that would carry. So with that one election as a model, is the is the experience we have observed in Florida this time around that unusual or that unexpected? Well, I, I think it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show, which is this is a very unsettled electorate. I mean, it still boggles my mind to think that somebody could have voted for Obama in 2012 and then turned around and voted for Trump in 2016. What that tells you is that there's almost a desperation. Somebody figure it out and do something. What does that mean? They want to they know that they're safe in their home and that their family is safe. They want a job that they feel is meaningful and upon which they can make a living. And they want meaningful shelter. Um, and whenever you get away from those issues, and Republicans are very good at driving the cultural agenda, um, you start casting people off into areas where um, they're not as sure or they're not as settled or there are a lot more divisions on issues that are really on the cultural agenda. Well, you know, I, I wonder if there's a little bit different message from this particular election. And the message might be... Um, Maybe polarization is overstated. Um, we have we hear in the media, we hear from politicians the florid rhetoric that polarizes society into red and blue. But I'm wondering if this particular election doesn't suggest that when voters actually go into the voting booth, they're not so polarized. That maybe. The, the, the good old medium voter, the, the voter who is pragmatic, who chooses uh, not based on party, but based on principle and possibly based on candidate, um, is there. And that's why we saw a lot of ticket splitting. That's why we saw a lot of rejection of extremists on both the left and the right. And that, at least in part, might explain the result, the surprising result that we got last night. 
One of the other things that's been commented that I, I want to give Mark a chance to comment on, I saw the Democrats finally start to pay attention to the fact, I think it may have been former President Obama's comments about uh, you got to stop being such a buzzkill. And they finally began to counteract some of the Republican criticisms of the economy and inflation and realize that Republicans are only criticizing. They're not offering any solutions. And we've taken these steps and done all these things and had all these accomplishments, whether it's the stimulus package or the anti-inflation programs or um, they've, they've kept millions out of poverty, out of bankruptcy. They've protected people from eviction during COVID. They've enacted student loan forgiveness. Um, the public's not going to remember those things and those enactments unless reminded. And the Democrats haven't been doing that. Was that possibly one of their big mistakes this time around? Well, it's it's a mistake they've been making basically since Obama, who didn't go out after the Affordable Care Act passed and stump around the country and sell it to everybody after it had passed. Biden tried to do that with his infrastructure uh, bill, but really didn't create a stir. And part of the problem is that everything was muted uh, by COVID. Um, you know, there's nothing more more uh, sleep-inducing than the Democrats' propensity to try to explain things to people. Uh, Republicans don't do that. They just tell you what they think you're thinking. Democrats are constantly trying to tell you, no, you don't understand the issues as well as I'd like you to. And nobody wants to be talked to quite that way. So, yeah, the Democrats could do better. The one thing Republicans are always going to be better at, there's a national issue, there's a national position on it. And if you read the news the next day, every Republican is saying the same thing. This election, no matter what office they were running for, they were all running against Biden. He's wrecking the country. He's ruining the economy. The more extreme rhetoric was they're all communists and they want to kill us all or take our guns. But they all, you know, when when the Republican Party says right face, everybody goes. The Democrats just don't do that. It's like somebody tries to issue a good message and, you know, you get together 10 Democrats, you get 15 opinions. I mean, they just argue over everything. And then when they're all done arguing with each other, they go out and explain to the public what the public doesn't understand. Well, nobody likes to be talked down to. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Jeff Hayden. Tonight, we're talking about where we are. Do we even know where we are in light of last night's election? My guest is political pundit Mark Simon. My co-host tonight is Emmy-nominated legal and political analyst Dean Johnson. And, of course, all of you. If you have questions for my guests or for the three of us, or you just want to join in the discussion, you have comments of your own, feel free. Our phone number is 415-841-4134. Again, 415-841-4134. If you're outside of the San Francisco Bay Area, call us toll-free at 866-798-8255. That's 866-798-8255. As always, you can call regarding any question on tonight's topic, the election, the system under which elections are run, predicted or decided. You're not limited to the point we may be in our conversation. I did get an interesting text from a fairly angry listener who asks about Governor DeSantis, and he's asking if he isn't elected president in 2024 
eventually he'll be president unless he makes a major misstep. And particularly if the Democrats continue down what he describes as a leftist hole. Um, he describes himself as the demographic that the Democrats should be most worried about losing permanently, uh, describing himself as a long-term and very disaffected Democrat. I'll skip some of the other more colorful things that he said, but I wanted to give you a chance to comment on that. Have they shifted and lost some of their more centrist constituency? Um. Sure. I, you know, part of the appeal of the Republicans is a lot of people are angry about the way the country is changing economically and demographically. And the Republicans hearken back to we're going to keep things the way they've always been. Um, you, you know, the, the, the trouble with projecting that far out is that we just don't know what might happen or who, who it might happen to and how it might happen. Right now, it looks like President Biden is going to run for re-election. Um, will people be weary of him by then? Uh, will they have a platform they can run on that says, look at all the things we've done for you? You know, there's an old saying in politics, it's better to give the, receive than to give if you're an elected official. Um, you get money from somebody, say I get, I'm running for Congress and I get $10 from Dean. Uh, Dean's going to be committed to me over the long run because he gave me $10. On the other hand, if I go out of my way to solve some problem Dean has or his business has, um, he may he may just think, well, that's it. That's all you're going to do. There's a tendency for people who get benefits to sort of bite the hand that feeds them. And that's that's the Democratic approach is feeding people, giving them what the Democrats think they need. Um, the trouble with that is that it often is not in sync with what people themselves think they need. As for whether or not DeSantis is going to misstep, the problem with <laughs> you know, the, the new post-Trump or current Trump era, I don't even know what a misstep is anymore. I mean, when Herschel Walker can you know, can have it confirmed that he's forced women to have an abortion uh, and it, it doesn't seem to hurt him, um, you know, all the rules that used to apply went out the window with Trump. And so... We're kind of in uncharted territory about what what sort of misstep can hurt somebody politically. I don't know exactly what it would be, except in DeSantis's case, it's alienating himself from that hardcore conservative base that's been with Trump but might be up for grabs now. Yeah, you know, we, we've talked about this before. Several years ago, there was a, a white paper circulated among the uh, leaders of the Republican Party which said, Demographics are changing, and if we don't, uh, with, given the demographics of the next generation of voters, if we don't do something, the Republican Party is essentially not going to exist by 2030. And the strategy, the something that they proposed to do was go after the hot-button cultural issues of people who were disaffected, Southern, white working class, non-college educated people who were very, you know, easily pushed by things like abortion, same-sex marriage, gun control, and so on. And uh, it seems to me that maybe that strategy is backfiring now, because as you point out, uh, in this election, we saw a lot of youth vote. 
We saw a lot of people rejecting uh, anti-abortion measures in very conservative states and so on. So maybe there's some cultural acceleration going on here. And the Republicans have made a giant mistake. When we come back from our short break, I wanted to ask a couple of other questions to factor in. One of the things that the pundits have talked about was looking at the issues that are important to people. And it's turned that in several states, they seem to have disagreed with the masses. And whereas in most states, people are talking about the, the economy or inflation, it's now turned out that in some states, maybe abortion was an issue. So when we come back, I'd like to pick up there and ask you, Mark, to about how much of a factor it may have been in the election. You're listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area. We'll be back right after this. Support for KALW is provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. So, Mark, let's pick it up there if we can. What are your thoughts on how important abortion might have been in some of these states? In states where it felt, I think, that it was genuinely threatened, it became important. I mean, I don't think anybody expecting uh, Prop 1 to do anything but pass overwhelmingly overwhelmingly in California. So I don't think it actually drove a lot of voters in California, except where someone tried to make a specific issue out of it in a local race. But um, nationally, uh, you know, I said earlier that Democrats always over-explain. Republicans, once they're in power, always overreach. And, and so they will... You know, if, if DeSantis is going to misstep, if any of these Republican leaders are going to misstep, it's because they operate under the assumption that everybody agrees with them. Um, and, and they're not right. Not everybody agrees with them uh, on an ab- issue like abortion. I, I think President Clinton is the one who demonstrated there's a large middle. Uh, I believe what he said was people think abortion should be rare and legal. Um, and so they'll overreach on that issue because once they're in power, they think that, you know, they've got the wind at their back. Um, they'll overreach a number of other issues. Most of them uh, probably domestic. Uh, so it, it was abortion, you know, a, a driving issue. I, I think uh, addressing sort of Dean's earlier point about a surprise about how well the Democrats turned out. I think that may have been one of the issues. Everybody expected it to be, more of a driving issue when it was first, when the Dobbs decision was first announced. Um, and so I think some of it faded. Uh, but I think in states where they realize that there's a very real possibility that this will be taken away or has been taken away, uh, it, it, it drove voters a little bit more than it might you might have expected. What about, I don't think, Dean, go I don't ahead. Think there's, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, a few weeks ago um, in Kansas, one of the reddest of red states, voters rejected an anti-abortion measure. And then last night in Kentucky, Kentucky, where we're talking about, you know, bald-headed kids and banjos, 
I mean, this is uh, Mitch McConnell's home state, Mr. Federal Ban on Abortion. Uh, voters went in and rejected um, an anti-abortion measure that was proposed as an amendment to the state constitution. And I think that is a real message that um, even though, as Bill Clinton said, it's the economy, stupid, and the economy is often the most salient issue that when people go into that voting booth um, and they think about, do I want, do I trust a candidate who is going to take away women's fundamental rights? Uh, do I want this state to turn into something out of the handmaid's tale? The answer is no. And, and I think they're finding that sort of extreme position um, repulsive. And that, I think, is one of the metrics that we have to throw in, that pundits have to throw in, and that Republicans have to throw in thinking about their future strategy. How do you reconcile the mindset of the voters of a state who, at the same time they reject that anti-abortion amendment to their constitution, at the same time they reelect fairly solidly Rand Paul and it just seems hard to reconcile those positions. But this, yeah, this is what I was talking about before. I, I think that a lot of Americans, we were, we, we believed that that middle ground voter who thinks issue by issue, who is pragmatic, uh, who really is non-ideological, we thought uh, he or she was was extinct. And uh, I think this election suggests that they're back, and that when people go into the into the voting booth. Um, they think in term, they think more in terms of issues than we thought. Rand Paul is a notorious libertarian. Uh, his, his views are sort of all over. They're hard to classify as liberal or conservative. Um, he think he believes uh, religiously almost in individual rights. Um, he also believes in things like limited government, um, limited involvement in international affairs. And those are things that would appeal to both uh, liberals, to liberals, conservatives and even libertarians. And there was a lot of, of that kind of ticket splitting all across the country. And I think that tells us a little something about uh, the American voter and her current attitude. Well, the other thing you have to remember is it's one thing to vote yes or no on a ballot measure as was the case in Kansas and here in Kentucky. Uh, elections for office are not yes-no propositions. So it all comes down to what choice you have. And, and there are people in the South and some of those states like Kentucky who will never vote for a Democrat. Uh, I, I saw on the news last night, uh, assuming everything plays out the way it, does, it looked like it would in Florida, it'll be the first time since the 60s there hasn't been a Democrat in statewide office in Florida. So, you know, people only, you know, only get the choices they get. And uh, I know they don't like the, the lesser of two evils. And our, our democracy is not about getting your way. It's about getting it's not about getting your choice. It's about having a choice. Um, and sometimes the choices are not wonderful, which is why people don't get lifetime appointments. You know, that feeds yeah. into another question I've been spoon fed by a listener who found who comments that is interesting and questions why do people bite the hands that feed them so often? In particular, she's referring to blue-collar working-class individuals who seemingly unwittingly vote for politicians who would be more than happy to do away with their Social Security, perhaps do away with some of their tax breaks. 
in favor of a different class of folks. Well, there's almost a legendary sign that was held up at one of the Tea Party rallies. Remember the Tea Party? Absolutely. Where there was a sign that said, government, get your hands off my Medicare. Um, some of it may be that people just don't understand completely how this works. It's, it's well known and well established that, that the states that get the most government services and pay the least for them are the reddest states. Um, but those are likely to be people who feel disaffected who feel left out and left behind. And the Republicans are very good at appealing on that level to people who feel that way. You know, there's a commentary I saw from Bill Maher perhaps uh, two years ago where he commented very much in line with what you just said and said where the Democrats have missed the boat with some of these folks is these folks feel very left behind. And instead of talking policies, we should be inviting them to the party. Look how much better things are. Look how much better our economies are developed. We should be inviting them to join us instead of feeling challenged by them. Yeah, this may be the greatest sales job of the last two centuries that Republicans starting back in around 1968 managed to convince people in the working class that labor unions were bad for them, that Social Security was bad, that Medicare and Medicaid were bad for them. And people who needed all of those things the most suddenly decided that the very people who were taking those things away had their best interests at heart. And the way they did it was to, to, to move away from the economic issues and start hitting the, the, the cultural hot button issues that they knew would uh, infuriate and enrage those people and get those people out to the polls. They reaped that, that, that whirlwind. And the result, frankly, was, was Donald Trump and the current wave of populism. Well, and it was Reagan. I mean, Reagan really changed, sort of flipped the whole script. And um, I mean, Nixon's strategy in 68 was more cynical. I'm going to make um, not so subtle appeals along racial lines and split off the South from the Democrats, which had been there since the Civil War. Um, In Reagan's case, he was really very good at messaging that government is the problem. Um, And I think we're still dealing with that issue. It's a little less coherent than it was uh, because Trump really doesn't have a coherent philosophy. But um, other than Trumpism, he's he's 100% for Trump. Um, But yeah, you know, he's... It all goes back to what we've been talking about, which is that we are in a very jumbled time where where it's sort of all bets are off. And some of it is change that's taking place. Some of it is sort of where our politics have arrived. Some of it is, is sort of the social media, social environment that's so different than it was. You know, I used to I used to refer to um, younger generations as the Burger King generation. Remember their slogan, have it your way? Uh we're old enough to have grown up and watched the same three network television stations and essentially got the same news in the same way as everybody else. Now it's all over the place and everybody can tailor the flow of information to their interests, whether it's Kardashians or uh, QAnon or not to equate the two of them by any means, or, you know, or hardcore progressive politics. Um, And so that's one of the challenges is that, it's a deeply splintered society, not so much politically as in our cultural habits and our information habits. One of the listeners also asked how this relates back to the culture wars. Does a white working class feel threatened 
by and losing privileges and status to the emergence of other other folks that are looking for a better foothold for themselves or the emergence of movements such as Black Lives Matter or Me Too, uh, seeing social change, feeling threatened and perhaps voting for people that will protect their status, protect the status quo. Is that some of the Republicans' messaging? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, There have been surveys done among um, Republicans, particularly Trump Republicans. And the universal theme you hear is we felt we felt like we were in line for all the benefits that society had to offer. Then somebody kicked us out of line and told us to go to the to the end of the line. Um, And that's what uh, that's what a lot of people who vote for Trump and who vote for extremist feel. They, they feel that they were entitled, um, that they had an ideal America where they were, where everybody knew their place and stayed in their place and their place was at the top. And they got, they got taken out of that place. And so that's why they keep saying, let's uh, make America great again. Let's take America back because in their mindset, in their universe, um, America uh, is, you know, there there was an America back in the day where everything was fine and everything was great and everybody was in their proper place and somebody took it away from us and now we have to take it back and any means uh, are justified in doing so. But of course, that America never really existed. You know, I, I, I think I, I think it has less to do with people who felt they were on top. I, I mean, I think most middle class people were satisfied if they could go to home, go to work get their job done, have a job that would last, that would pay for their family, for their home, you know, maybe a, you know, a jet ski or two or something like that. Um, and, and they feel as though that is being taken away from them. And, you know, and for things that they think they didn't do, you, you know, I, I've had friends tell me, look, I, I'm sorry about slavery, but I, I, I didn't enslave anybody. Why, why do I have to now pay a price for it? You know, and it's been called America's original sin. And the question is what it takes to sort of uh, alleviate ourselves from it. You, you know, there's a, there's a race that you, you, you referenced at the top of the show, a supervisor race in San Mateo County is too close to call uh, between a school board trustee, Noelia Corzo, um, and a Belmont City Council member, Charles Stone. Um, and she, if she gets elected, as of the last count, she was... Behind, she was ahead by 86 votes, had been over like 130 on election night. So the the lead is narrowed, and more than half the ballots countywide have not been counted yet. I don't know how many there are in that supervisorial district, but there undoubtedly are more than enough to change the outcome. But um, she ran a very open campaign about being the you know, if elected the first Latina elected to the San Mateo County Board of Supervisors. She's very open that if um, if she and another woman running don't win, the Board of Supervisors will be all white male. Um, she had a line uh, in one of her posts the other day. Let me find it here because it was she, uh, somebody said she is truly here for our people. Um, now, I think that's, you know, kind of code for 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 people who are not who don't look like the three of us, who are not white, who are not established, who've not had the reins of power uh, essentially given to us over time. 
And she's run a very insurgent, I'm going to take the reins of power campaign. We'll see if it works. Uh, if it's been a presidential year, I think she might have might have won and won by more um, just because the turnout would be substantially different. It probably didn't help that this was a gubernatorial election, a sort of an off-year election. Um, but that was the issue she tried to raise. I mean, the guy, uh, Charles Stone, who was running against her, was endorsed by Jackie Speer, by Kevin Mullen, by every major political figure you could want. He'd been on the council for many years. He had all of the establishment credentials. But he's unmistakably a white guy. And um, she was clearly hoping to put together a coalition of people who, who think this is their turn. It's their time uh, to move ahead. And as we said at the top of the show, it, it may not be this time, uh, but that time is coming. And it's just a question of how many elections. I mean, unfortunately, you know, people get elected to the Board of Supervisors, a four-year term, a three-year term, three-term limit, and people don't tend to run against incumbents. So it could be 12 years before somebody has this kind of opportunity again. There are two more seats up in 2024. I expect the same dynamic to occur. And, and if somebody wins who looks more and believes more like Noelia Corzo, she should get credit for clearing the path, for paving the way, for showing the way. It may just be timing that didn't quite work out for her. And we'll see. I mean, she's ahead now. Um, I, I'm not optimistic that she'll stay ahead, but uh, I don't tend to be optimistic about anything. So that's just my problem. Yeah, the other side of it, I, I do want to take another caller. We have a caller that's been waiting patiently. But one would hope that at some point we get past this and we choose people based on the content of their character, based on their level of experience, and not be judging pro or con based on their race, their gender, by things that none of us can choose. And at some point we get to a society where we're neutral on these factors, but we're not there. Let me turn no, it to I, Fran from let, San Francisco. Let, let me interject here, if I may, Jeff. And I apologize, Fran, but that, that's kind of the campaign that, that, that Ms. Corzo ran, which is uh, it's, it's our turn. And so it was racial politics uh, in its own way, in a, in a sort of a, from the other side of the coin. I'm sorry uh, to just cut you off, Fran. Fran, welcome to your legal rights. Hello? Fran, you're on the air. Welcome. Hi. Uh, welcome back, uh, Mr. Hayden. Thank, Thank you, you very much. I just have a brief comment. Um, I think that that was a great silver lining to the loss of um, Roe versus Wade. It was like a silver lining for, for us that, um, you know, the abortion issue, why people voted Democrat. And um, my second thought about is Ron DeSantos. He was very lucky that the... Um, storm came along after he sent the um, immigrants, you know, to um, not Boston. Remember Boston. when he did that? He sent yeah. them. He sent them to uh, Martha's Vineyard, wasn't it? That's not? right. Yes. And he, you know, that was kind of not. Um, he, in a way, it wasn't like the greatest thing that he ever did, and I think it may have affected his vote that the hurricane came along and sort of just rolled right over that. It's just an opinion I have. I don't know. Does anybody think that had anything to do with his winning or not? And I'm, I'm thank you again for the show. Thank you very much, and thank you for joining us. My own thoughts, and I will turn it over to, to Mark, who's our expert in the field. My own thoughts are there's a lot of other factors in Florida, such as redistricting, 
that had a pretty tremendous effect on the impact. And if you looked at the maps that were being shown on virtually every network last night, you could see areas of Florida that were turning in a very a very conservative vote in areas that have been traditionally Democratic. But I'd like to turn it over to the real expert. Mark, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you know, disasters are opportunities. It's a very callous way of putting it. But, you know, if he gets high marks for how he responded to the, uh, the hurricane, Hurricane Ian, you know, that, that can't hurt. You know, when you're running for re-election, if you're running against an incumbent, the first job you have is to tell people why they don't want the incumbent. The next job is to tell them why they want you instead. And if the, the incumbent starts off with a general sense from people that he managed the crisis well, that's a strong place to start from. And uh, there's no question that's where DeSantis started from. Friend, I hope that answered your question, uh, your comment, and I appreciate your joining us on your legal rights. I did want to leave. I, I did want to leave a little bit of time for some of the more local issues. We're kind of transitioning there, but I did want to ask you one last question on the federal stuff. In general, I want to ask you a big compound question. It's who's going to, who do you see ruling the house? Who do you see ruling the Senate? And the single most important question is when do you think we'll know for sure? Well, you, you know, uh, let me answer the last question first, uh, because it'll be days, or in the case of Georgia, there'll be a runoff. Uh, it, it'll be, I think December 4th is when the runoff is scheduled, so it'll be weeks. Uh, and it could come down to one seat, uh, one way or the other, which is pretty much the way the Senate is now, essentially. Uh, the House, if they have a majority, will be slim. If the Democrats have enough control over the Senate, that will stymie most of what the Republicans will want to do in the House. Most of the major things they'll want to do are probably going to require more than a 50% vote. So that complicates it. The real, the real issue for the Republicans, if even if they have a one-vote, one-seat one majority, is, is that they will launch just a wave of investigations and accusations. Marjorie Taylor Greene said her top three priorities were to impeach President Trump, impeach the Secretary of State, and impeach the Attorney General. And I thought, well, there, there's a hefty legislative agenda. Um, so it's, you know, they're fighting, they're fighting mad. Uh, and I, by the way, I wouldn't guarantee that Kevin McCarthy ends up as Speaker. There are plenty of dissidents within his own caucus who may just think that this is their time. Um, when will we know? You know, this is the new normal. Because we have purposely gone out of our way to establish mail-in voting, widespread, you know, it's the only, only voting really in California. Um, but everywhere there was an attempt to expand the ease by which you can vote. And that was, you know, when they do that, that benefits Democrats, which is why Republicans are resisting it. But it also drags out the process. You know, if, if your ballot can be mailed on Election Day, and arrive two days after Election Day. There is no such thing as Election Day anymore. Um, it, so that's the other part of that is that it has, it provides fuel to Republican accusations that the system is fixed. You know, San Mateo County was legendary for decades as being the first in 
with with definitive results like within an hour after the polls closed. They called it their snap tally. Um, and there was something reassuring about that. Knowing the outcome quickly made it feel more certain, even if it turns out it really wasn't that certain, that, that in some cases they kind of got lucky that they called things the way they did. But they can't do that anymore. They just have to count the ballots. And that just takes time. Now, there are more of them. The turnout tends to be a little bit better than it had been because of um, vote by mail. Um, I imagine more people across a broader spectrum of voting. I mean, if you're running for office and you're walking precincts and you walk past five houses to go to a place where you know somebody's voted before, you may be walking past five houses where there are ballots that are just sitting there waiting for someone to vote. So there's going to be uncertainty. It's just built into the system now. Um, and the only thing that stresses me is that it, it encourages accusations of of malfeasance of some kind when in fact it just takes time and you know you want them to take time you want them to do it right so are we looking at a, a the next few years of the federal government being even more dysfunctional than it has been before well it's it's pretty dysfunctional now i i think yeah, it's it, pretty close now yeah. yeah although you know the democrats did get some major legislation passed um, and managed to wrangle some Republican votes in the Senate to do that. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we all hear how divided the country is. And uh, I tend to agree with you, Dean. I don't think it's as divided as it's depicted because the people on who, who are on either side, you know, that's in their interest, that's their manner. Uh, Democrats now fight the same way Republicans used to, and that didn't be used to be the case. Uh, and they think probably that's a good thing. Um, but, um, you, you know, you've got a bunch of people up there in, in Sacramento and in Washington, more Washington, um, who uh, are, are worried about angry people. Uh, the, the attack on Paul Pelosi was chilling and, and very unsettling, the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. So, I, you know, I wrote in my column tomorrow, I wrote a concluding paragraph. Why would anybody run for office right now? And I want to tip my hat, uh, although Jeff's the one wearing a hat. I would tip my hat to those who decided to go ahead and run. Because, my gosh, how unpleasant do you think the experience has been for some of them? So I'm not sure I answered your question, but I think, yes, the answer is yes. There's no reason to think. I mean, look at all the money that was spent, and we're going to end up almost precisely where we were before. Yeah, you know, I've often wondered what it would be like to be that have that first day on the job as a congressperson. Kevin Mullen arrives in Washington, D.C. His colleagues that he has to deal with are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they're in the majority. What do you do? How do you find common ground? How do you move forward? Well, there's still room. You know, there are members of the delegation in the Bay Area. Anna Esch is a good example. There is still room to work across the aisle depending on who it is and depending on what the issue is. That's why the infrastructure bill passed. Uh, you know, right, right around the time they were voting on it, I happened to be driving through the state and I was driving through Bakersfield, which is Kevin McCarthy's hometown. And I couldn't help but notice massive federal highway projects were being built there. And for a guy who's a fiscal conservative, he still understands the basic political principle. You better bring the bacon home. It's so like the founder of the Tea Party who protested against all government benefits, but then went out and had a full 
hip replacement on Medicare. Uh, and said, "Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't like it, but I'm not going to make a way. But I'm not going to make it a way of life." No. Speaking of that, or not, I wanted to give you a couple minutes, Mark, if you'd like for any commentary at the end. Thank you, Jeff. Um, we we talked a little bit uh, in the uh, pre-show discussion which unfortunately for your listeners is probably much more interesting than what I've been blathering on about here. But um, I was struck in San Mateo County um, that it, that in some ways it's more left than the rest of the state. Um, Newsom got 57.6% uh, of the vote statewide. In San Mateo County got 72%. Prop 1 was approved 65% statewide. In San Mateo County, 76.7%. So it shows you that, that on social issues, they're still very, very liberal on some issues. Um, what I would say, though, and I, I was talking to Diane Pappen, Assemblymember-elect Diane Pappen last night, about this seeming split in San Mateo County between progressives and moderates. And she said she would reject the idea that they're moderates. She says they're pragmatic. And, and that really does characterize a lot of San Mateo County's politics, and I think that's what ended up happening was that the, the pragmatic side of most voters tended to prevail. Another example, there was a ballot measure in Menlo Park, Measure V. It was put on by an initiative that would essentially have handcuffed the ability of anybody to build more than a home on an area zone for single-family residents. And it, it was defeated by more than 60% of the vote. So this is still uh, not a place where people swing wildly. Um, they just express their opinions, but when it's time to make policy, they want pragmatic approaches. You've been listening to Your Legal Rights on KALW, 91.7 FM, San Francisco Bay Area, where we began our discussion of an election that doesn't seem to be quite over. Our guest tonight has been longtime political writer Mark Simon. Thanks to my co-host and partner in crime, Dean Johnson. And a big thanks to our guests for joining us been most enlightening and we will complete the discussion next week and especially our thanks to all of you for listening in and at the controls joanne marr i'm jeff hayden be safe and have a good night Support for KALW was provided by the Bar Association of San Francisco. If you live in San Francisco or Marin County, the Bar Association's Lawyer Referral Service can arrange for you to meet with an attorney experienced in the area of law related to your situation. Call 415-989-1616 or visit sfbar.org for more information. Uh-huh.